The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Before we get started, please allow me a moment to share some important information with you. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. In recent episodes, you've heard me mention I'll be at CrimeCon, the true crime convention in New Orleans this June. There's so many things to do there if you're into true crime. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably want to visit Podcast Row where I'll be alongside some great podcasts and hosts. If you're on the fence, don't delay. Get your badges today by visiting CrimeCon.com, and at checkout, use my promo code, CRIMINOLOGY19, to save 10% on your standard badge. In addition to CrimeCon, one other event that I'm really excited about is the 2019 Cold Case Conference, being put together by ISOC, the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. It's being held at the College of St. Rose in Albany, New York, April 15th through 16th, and it'll feature panels and discussion with lots of familiar faces in the world of true crime. From Aphrodite Jones to Dr. Henry Lee, I'll be there as part of a panel discussing just how and why podcasts can aid investigators in cold cases. I'm excited to be on that panel alongside Tim and Lance from the Missing Maura Murray podcast and John Lorden from the YouTube channel Brain Scratch. If you'd like to learn more, visit isoc.com, which is A-I-S-O-C-C.com, and you'll be able to get more details. It's going to be fun, and I hope you'll come out for that in April. Now that we've got that out of the way, on with the show. Portland, Maine is the most populated city in that state. It's a city that's known for beautiful waterfront views and its fishing industry. And although you probably don't think of Portland when you think of crime, The city's crime rate is about 6% higher than the national average, but that's probably due to most of the state's residents living in Portland and its outskirts. It then begins to make more sense. But overwhelmingly, the city's crime is connected mostly to theft and only averages two murders per year. 
One of those murders occurred in November 1990. The victim, a 26-year-old father of two named Scott Sampson, died on the sidewalk in front of a convenience store in the early morning hours of Tuesday, November 13th. Just before 2 a.m., police were called to investigate an unconscious man in front of the store located at 64 Pine Street in the West End of Portland. When police arrived just moments later, they found Scott Sampson by himself lying on the ground, bleeding from multiple wounds that they would later determine were stab wounds. Scott Sampson never regained consciousness and died at the scene. The only possible witness, ironically, was a passing police officer. As he drove by the store, he looked over, and he saw Scott Sampson and another unknown man together in front of the store. The two men appeared to be having some sort of physical altercation, but the officer couldn't tell if the two men were horsing around or actually fighting. The officer continued driving up Pine Street, and after driving for a short distance, decided to circle back to check on the men. During this time, police received the call that a man was lying unconscious on the sidewalk. By the time the officer arrived back at the scene, the second man was gone, and Scott was lying on the ground bleeding. Near his body, investigators found the bike that Scott had ridden from his girlfriend's house to the store. They also found possible physical evidence that may have been connected to Scott's killer. But the lack of a murder weapon, a motive, and a suspect immediately made this investigation an uphill battle. And unlike today, where there seems to be so much video surveillance, a camera on every corner, or in every store, that wasn't the case back in 1990. Scott's family, who were very religious, were devastated by his murder, but tried to turn to their faith to make sense of what happened. They had the difficult task of trying to explain to Scott's young sons, five-year-old Sean and two-year-old Kyle, that their father was gone and wasn't coming back. Following Scott's murder and news releases about the case, police made it a point to mention that Scott had a criminal background for offenses that included assault and drunk driving. And it's not clear what, if anything, Scott's record had to do with his murder. But to some, it came off as victim-blaming by the police. By all accounts, Scott Sampson wasn't a choir boy. He wasn't perfect. He was a 26-year-old man still trying to find his way in the world, and he made some mistakes along the way. Although Scott's relationship with the mother of his sons ended, he remained a devoted and dedicated father. When Scott lost his driver's license due to the drunk driving charges, he was determined to not let that stop him from being there for his children. He often rode a bike for miles just to see his boys. Both Sean and Kyle were so young when their father died that their memories of him are few and far between. They've had to rely mostly on photos and stories about their father to fill in some of the blanks. They've even discovered that their father, who was rough on the outside, had a softer interior, even writing poetry. But poems, stories, and photos aren't enough. Sean and Kyle, who are both grown men now with families of their own, want what they missed out on, a full life with their dad. They would have liked to have gone fishing with him, or maybe to a baseball game or movie. That never happened. They wish that their children could have known their grandfather, and have him in their lives. In recent years, while Scott's case has grown cold and hasn't gotten a lot of attention, his sons continue to fight to get answers in his case. Whether it's talking to any newspaper that will write a story about their father, 
were hanging flyers around the city of Portland, asking for anyone with information to come forward. They continue to do what they can, all the while hoping that any physical evidence in their father's case might one day lead directly to a suspect. In recent years, police investigating Scott Simpson's murder have been working with DNA that possibly belongs to Scott's killer, but as of now, it hasn't led to an arrest. Scott Sampson's oldest son, Sean, sat down with me to talk about his father's case and about the frustration of not having an arrest after decades of waiting for one. That conversation is next. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Sean, thanks for discussing your father's, Scott's case with us today. Yeah, no problem. You were just five years old, and your brother Kyle was just two and a half, is that correct, when your father was killed? Yes, that's correct. And being that you were both so young, do either of you have any memories of him from so long ago? Um, I do. I have some memories that I hold close to my heart. Um, My brother, unfortunately, doesn't really remember much. Um, He does have some vague memories of the funeral, and uh, that's about it. And do you guys feel as if you were robbed because you don't have those memories? Is is there some kind of a piece missing uh, to your lives because you didn't get the chance to, to get some of those memories with your dad? Absolutely. The, the little things in life, you know, when your dad can take you fishing or throw a ball with you or, you know, teach you to play football. It's just the little things that uh, we really missed out on. Even just something as simple as going to a movie, you know. And unfortunately, now we both have children, and um, you know they're missing a grandfather. So it's something that's going on beyond just you. It's going on to another generation, to your kids. You got it. It's affecting uh, my kids now and my brother's kids. You know, not having a grandfather, and to explain that to uh, an eight-year-old is pretty hard. When your dad was killed, I assume that you're family at the time because you were so young they probably had a handle that news delicately with with you what did they tell you happened to your dad um they originally just told us you know that um he had to go to heaven and uh you know my family's very religious so my grandmother took the god god approach and uh you know said you know god needed a new angel and explained to me that uh you know the good die young and kind of that whole approach with the uh with god and angels and how uh god needed a new angel and a new helper so that kind of was the story for a while until you know i started asking questions and um as i asked questions my family you know didn't really beat around the bush with me you know so they really kind of sat me down my aunts and uncles my grandmother and my mom and explained the whole story to me probably by the time i was eight or nine So you had a at a pretty early age you had an understanding of what had happened to your dad. Absolutely. Um about eight I would say eight or nine, 
um, my family sat me down and, you know, explained to me that uh, my dad was murdered and that the killer was still free and uh, there's no leads, no tips, you know, it's just a typical cold case. And how did that affect you as as a young child growing up? How did you cope with that? Did you have... Uh, you said you mentioned you're religious. Did you have the church get involved to help you uh, guide you through that, or was there counseling of any kind that you had to do? Yep. So um, I guess the, my mom and the school kind of got together and uh, got me with the school counselor, and uh, you know I talked quite a bit with the counselor and tried to open up, but uh, really I I started opening up as I got older, um, trying to use my outlets as like sports and you know lifting weights and striving to be better at basketball or baseball or whatever I was into at the time. Um, just kind of submersing myself into that just to, you know, wrap my head around it. Um, I always kind of thought, you know, why me, why my family, you know, why, why do I have to grow up without a dad now? Therefore my mom has to struggle, you know, to provide for us. And, uh, you know, why, why couldn't it happen to somebody else or why couldn't I be somebody else? You know, it was always the questions that always ran through my mind. And and a lot of times without having a father figure, you know, you can go down the wrong path and, and Very easy. life can get affected negatively, but it sounds like you tried to work through that with some, some positive things to keep you grounded. Yeah. My family always wanted to steer me in the right direction. Um, you know, with the religion, I was at school, uh, five days a week and then come Sunday, we did Sunday school. I'm Catholic. So we always, you know, we had to be at church for nine lunch, dinner, whatever, with the family on Sundays. Um, family is really important to uh, my family. So we really uh, stuck together, and they made sure that I didn't take that ride. It would have been easy for me to just, you know, get on drugs and try to escape at 15, 16. But uh, like I said, my escape was sports and um, lifting weights, and it still is to this day. You know, at 30, 33, 34 years old, I'm still playing soccer and boxing and I'm constantly playing basketball and at the gym and I just use that as my outlet. I, I still am frustrated with this whole case and uh, I think about my dad every day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him. And have you had to become sort of a, you know, I t- talked to a lot of people on the show that become their own sort of uh, armchair detectives trying to, to figure out what happened to their loved one. Have you gone down that road where you're constantly going through stuff and trying to figure out who did it and why? Absolutely. That brings me to you. Um, you know, in my my uh, reach to news news and papers, newspapers and social media, um, my brother has even gone as far as, you know, um, posting pictures of my dad in the neighborhood that he was murdered in with a little flyer, you know, saying my dad's story and what happened to him and a photo of my dad. Um, my, my aunt Sandy actually was the, um, second string quarterback on the case. If you would, she is the one who's given me all the paperwork and has kind of passed the torch to me. She worked on my dad's case from, uh, probably I'd say the summer of 91, right up until probably the late nineties, 98, 99. And then, um, you know, my grandmother started falling ill and just life caught up with her. So she kind of gave up and, uh, passed the torch to me. And so now here I am with the file in front of me of my dad's, um, you know, police records and uh, homicide reports and uh, autopsy reports and 
you know, death certificates and every, everything I can do to connect with my dad, even poems that he's wrote, you know, and uh, things like that. I'm just trying to go through everything. I've been through it all probably about a hundred times and uh, nothing really stands out other than um, his girlfriend at the time. So I actually reached out and contacted her. Her name was Tara Weatherly, and I contacted her on numerous occasions, kind of trying to uh, pick her brain a bit, see if anything would jog her memory. She was um, she was the last person to see him alive, basically. He left her house that night. And uh, she gave me the names of a couple of guys I gave to Portland police, but, um, you know, I never heard anything back. Um, we also, with the DNA being so big um, now, we have had my dad's sweater um, and things of that, his cigarette butts that were found at the crime scene, a couple of knives that were actually found um, in the catch basin of the crime scene, and we haven't had any luck with that either. So I'm hoping... It's just going to be word of mouth. I'm just going to keep getting a story out there, and somewhere somebody's going to see it, and uh, they're going to say something. Let's take a second to talk about our sponsor today, Care Of. Support for this episode of The Murder of My Family comes from Care Of. What is Care Of? Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. I tried Care Of, and it was so amazingly easy. I took a five-minute quiz at TakeCareOf.com that asked me questions about my diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, all to find out what vitamins and supplements I needed. A few days later, a box was delivered right to my door with a supplement and vitamin plan tailored to my specific needs. The enclosed plan was so personalized, it referred to me by name throughout the plan and on each daily pack of supplements and vitamins. Producing a podcast takes a lot of attention and focus, so I was especially excited to try rhodiola. I'm starting to notice that I have a clear head whenever I sit down to write and record. The ready-to-go daily packs are perfect for people on the go or with a busy lifestyle, and Care-of even offers vegan and vegetarian supplements to match your dietary needs. Take advantage of this month's special New Year offer, for 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter Family50 at checkout. Once again, you can take advantage of this month's special New Year offer, getting 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, by going to TakeCareOf.com and entering Family50 at checkout. And now, back to the discussion with Sean Sampson about his father's murder. And and you mentioned your, your dad's... Uh, girlfriend at the time so your your folks were separated or divorced at the time yeah so they were young i mean my mom was like probably i think she was 23 or 24 at the time and my dad was 26 so they were in their early 20s you know they were still trying to find themselves um, my dad you know he was young he liked the party still he he did drink on occasion um so my mom you know just didn't want to be around that and uh, she packed me and my brother up and we moved so my dad was actually seeing, uh, he was living with my grandmother and he was seeing another woman um, down in Portland at the time. And at the time when this happened, did your family know anyone that might have wanted to hurt your dad? Somebody at that time he had an issue with that your family knew about? Yeah, so the detectives tried to, um, you know, pursue that avenue with, um, you know, any local fights he might have been in or anything like that. Um, but really there was no nothing that stood out. There was no red flag or smoking gun, if you would. Um, even all my dad's friends said, you know, he was such a charismatic, you know, he was outgoing. He was funny. Um, occasionally when he drank, he might be a little belligerent, but, uh, you know, for the matter of fact, there was just no enemy, 
that was, you know, right up highlighted like this guy is, is it right. So we never uh, had any real answers to why or who or how. And I, in a couple of the reports I was reading in the news articles, um, the police made it a point to share information that your father had some minor offenses like assault or drinking related offenses. Did, did you feel that they, I don't want to use the term victim blaming, but did you feel that they, they needed to say that or did they really feel that there was something in his past that might've been tied to his murder? And that's why they mentioned that. Uh, You know, I think that um, at the time, they were taking the uh, the easy way or the high road out, you know, trying to portray him as um, somebody that was really uh, a nuisance to the public and that, uh, you know, it, it just didn't matter, you know. So I, I feel like they kind of um, diluted my dad's image because he was really a kind, soft-spoken man. I mean, he, he would do anything for you if he loved you. And, and even as a matter of fact, I mean, he hitchhiked from Maine to California when he was 18. You know, he, he experienced so much. He was just such a free-spirited person that I think that when they portrayed the assaults or the drinking and driving charge or whatever it was, it was it was just deluding him as who he really was. Like I said, it's just kind of making him a nuisance Um to society right so now we don't really have to work so hard on this case but i actually i actually have some uh i have some poems that my dad wrote um when he was doing uh i think he did like 60 days in jail for his oui for drinking and driving and really these poems that he's written if i were to read them to you you would see or hear that you know somebody who's just got such a big heart and um he was a very uh very open-minded, like I said, very free-spirited person. Do you want to share one? Sure, I can uh, pull one up right now. Okay. So, this one is, uh, I guess, about women. So, why does she cry? Her heart is like a rock that cannot be held. It is too heavy, heavy as hell. When the bells of the churches ring, her love for the bride makes them sing. But they cannot be heard above the church bell ding. She listens in despite of the frightful night. She cries because she would die. She cries not to see the light. You know, he, he was very, um, he was very poetic. You know, he was very artsy. He was a cook, you know, he liked to cook and, uh, flat out. He was a, a mommy's boy. You know, he really loved my, my grandmother and, uh, my grandmother really had a soft spot for my dad. It sounds like he was, you know, somebody that was, uh, um, had a sensitive side. He might've been tough on the outside, but like a lot of us guys, you know, yeah. there's a, a sensitive layer be- beneath that. If you were to speak to any of my cousins, um, that are older than me, they would tell you, you know, amazing things about my dad. My dad would take them for bike rides and swimming. And when my cousin Ryan, he would, my cousin Ryan was in karate, which eventually got a black belt. You know, my dad would teach him all kinds of things and, it was there was no end to my dad's heart. There really wasn't. Which makes it even worse that you missed out on that time with him because you might have had lots of great experiences with him. Absolutely. From what I can remember with him, you know, the three or four memories that I do have, I have one good memory where, um, you know, we, we pitched a tent in my aunt's backyard and uh, we we slept under the stars. It was one of those nights where you could just keep the top off the tent so you could see through the screen. And uh, we looked at the stars all night and we talked about 
you know, heaven and earth and maybe what's out there and aliens. And, you know, he's just so open-minded. And, and then in the morning I woke up and he was gone and I, and I panicked. <laughs> so I ran into the house crying and he was just sitting there at the counter having a cup of coffee and he just shook his head laughing. Like, why are you crying? And I said, I thought you disappeared. You know, he looked right at me and he said, I'll never leave you boy. I'll always be here for you. And, uh, you know, that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And that's, that's it, a good memory to have. And you know what? He wasn't lying. Like when my mom and him split up, my mom moved six hours away. And at the time my dad didn't have a driver's license due to the drinking and driving charge. So he got a ride from a friend about four hours up North. He still had two or three hours to go. And, uh, he hitchhiked and he walked the whole way just to get to my house, just to give me something and to turn around and leave, you know, like it, he he'd walk across the whole state just to see me for five minutes. You know, that just said a lot about him. And so to, despite whatever predicament he was in, he still wasn't going to let that stand in his way of, of being a good dad to you. Nope, not at all. He was going to be there for me and my brother, no matter what. And even then I remember that night when he came up, I remember him and my mom kind of got into an argument. You know, she was upset that he showed up without telling her. And, um, you know, I didn't really understand cause I was a kid, but, you know, now that I look back at it, I, I realized, you know, he, he would, he would do anything for me or my brother. He would have done anything for us. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. And let's let's talk a little bit about some of the clues or you mentioned DNA. So they do have some potential DNA evidence that they're working with in the case. Well, so from what they've found, um, like off the sweater that he was wearing and um, like cigarette butts at the crime scene and things like that, they sent it out for the DNA analysis. Um, there was never any hits that came back. I, so I'd like to think that they have that DNA on file. Um, but the person that committed the crime is just not in the, I believe it's called CODIS, which is like a national uh, database where people's criminals DNA go to. Right. So um, I don't think there's much they can do with it. At, and then at the time that was uh, early stages of the, um, I believe it's mito, mitochondrial DNA, which where they can like split hairs and kind of get into the hair aspect of it. And uh, nothing really came about of that as well. So, I think, um, like I said, really the evidence in the case is really um, limited and that really our biggest weapon to find out who did this is just word of mouth. <coughs> Excuse me. So, and, and the good thing about DNA is that although there might not be a lot to do with it now, there, it's always advancing. So maybe a couple years from now, there might be some new groundbreaking science that they can do other stuff with it they, that they can't do uh, yeah, currently. Absolutely. There's actually a, a thing out I was just reading about the other day that they can, um, so you submit the DNA and through their computer algorithm, they can um, tell you what color hair that person has, what eyes they have, you know, their genetics, and then they actually can come up with a composite of what that person may look like. So it's kind of something I've been looking into. I don't know if I can 
get a hold of Portland PD to submit the DNA because it is a private company, and I'm not sure what the cost is on that either, but something I'm kind of looking into right now. Yeah, it's great seeing all in the news all these different cases being solved with with DNA, uh, you know, cases that for years were cold and and couldn't be solved, and then lo and behold, there's DNA work that they're doing. Uh, so there's there's always a chance when you have DNA of some sort that something can happen, even if it's not now. Maybe a couple of years from now, if, if they don't have enough now to work with it, maybe down the road they can. Absolutely, and. Like for um, people like yourself who are doing podcasts and uh, things like that, that are that's really another weapon for everybody in my situation. So it's good. We're thankful for that. So were there any witnesses or anything at all as far as uh, potential clues or evidence about what happened and who did it? So there's that's another uh, avenue, really. There's no real witnesses. So. What happened was my dad had entered the store on 64 Pine Street in the west end of Portland. And uh, he entered the store. It was a 7-Eleven or a Cumberland Farms or something like that at the time. He went in, got something to eat. It was really late at night. It was about 1, one 2 o'clock in the morning. He uh, was leaving his girlfriend's house. He got some food, walked out. So at this time, a patrol officer drives by and sees my dad speaking with another man. Now, in some of the reports... It says that he actually saw them jostling, like they were friends, they were buddies, maybe shoving, pushing, joking around kind of thing. And then the police officer drove back by, um, I'm not sure exactly how long later, but then realized that uh, on upon his arrival that he seen my dad laying face down. Um, so he approached my father. Um, my dad didn't respond to his verbal commands, so he attempted to find a pulse on him. And uh, once he tried to find a pulse, he wasn't able to find that pulse. And then he just notified dispatch right away. And uh, they automatically uh, shut it down and made it a crime scene. And they weren't able to get any kind of surveillance video or any, any of that kind of stuff either? No, not in 1990. It was, you know, it's not like today where everybody has a camera on their front porch, you know. So um, I'm, I'm pretty sure, because uh, later in life I actually went to a community college in Portland uh, for criminal justice, and one of the detectives that, or two of the detectives that worked on my dad's case, were uh, one was a professor at that school, and the other one was the head of security at the school. So I sat down with them both, um, and they said, you know, they canvassed the area, they they talked to people in the area, they tried to find as many cameras as they could, but uh, yeah, it's just to no avail. So let me ask you this: after thirty years. What gives you the the drive to keep on going and keep on looking for for answers? Um, right now, it's uh, for peace of mind for me and my brother, um, and peace of mind for our children, where they don't have a grandfather. I think that uh, you know, showing them that we never gave up, give up on this, and uh, keep pushing. Anything's possible, right? And when my grandmother was sick a few years ago. Um, she said, you know, she said to me, her dying wish was to, to find out who took her boy. She said, I want to know who took my Scotty. And I looked right at my grandmother and I told her, I said that, I, you know, if we can't find him before you go, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up. So I'm going to keep going for the rest of my life. But at this point, I realized that the gentleman who murdered my father was probably in his late twenties, maybe early thirties. Um, so, you know, he's 
getting up there, you know, he's probably in his late fifties, early sixties at this point. So my, uh, my window of opportunity is shrinking every day. Uh, hopefully police are able to get a name for you and, and make an arrest and you can find out who it is and, and he doesn't pass away before the police catch up to him. That's, that's my goal anyway, you know, or even if this guy's going to be on his deathbed and at least he tells somebody, you know, at least I have something. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about reaching out to the police. Are they in regular contact with you? Do you have uh, regular uh, discussions with them to see what's going on and to make sure they're still digging into the case? Yeah, my um, Portland Portland PD experience is um, pretty subpar. I mean, it's a cold case, so it's really not of any importance. But uh, at the bottom... Uh, the bottom line is that they only have so many cases to work on in Portland. There's only 20, 20 unsolved cases, I think. So my dad's case is one of the oldest. It, there's only one more before him that is one of the oldest cases in Portland, Maine, that's unsolved. Um, Portland has its own cold case division. So unfortunately, I don't get the benefits of the state police, where the state police um, have a cold case division, which... They have actually solved quite a few homicides in the last few years, so I feel like I'm kind of getting the short end of the stick here. They don't uh, they don't follow up very well. I've called the detectives have switched a few times, so I I'll get to know one detective. I'll give them some names that I might have ha- have gotten or whatever I think is um, something they should be looking into, and then next thing you know, I call back and it's a new detective on the case and it's phone tag. You know, they never get back to you. So my experience with them is just not very pleasant. Well, hopefully somebody there is working on it, and it's not just forgotten and put up on a shelf someplace. They're actually thinking of ways to solve it, and you know whether it's the DNA or, or new science, ho- hopefully they're doing that and looking into the case continually. Well, I'm not going to give up. Like I said, I'm going to keep going until I get some answers. So they're going to hear from me a couple times a year whether they like it or not. And if someone out there listening in that area or any anywhere in the country uh, has information or they think they may have known something about your father's murder, who can they contact and share that information or share a tip with? I would strongly recommend that they contact the Portland Police. Um, the number is uh, 207-874-8479. That's 207 207- Eight seven four eight four seven nine, and you can leave an anonymous tip with Portland Police. They won't ask for any information. We'll be sure to put that in the notes too. Put that phone number in there so people can see that and, and call it if they have information. Thank you. And do you have any kind of uh, Facebook or media pages set up for your dad? I don't actually. Um, I do follow a um, Facebook page that's in Maine, which is. Um, basically for uh, people who are in my same situation. And uh, so they they tend to post things um, for me. So I've been fr- pretty fortunate for that. And then the uh, Facebook page is called Had. It's H-A-A-D Enough Inc. So it's Had Enough Inc. And it's the main cold case alliance. And it's basically just a group of people like myself who um, are in the same boat. Well, hopefully people will check that out too, and, and maybe they'll be able to find information there that can help them um, spark some kind of uh, 
ignite some kind of interest in the case or, you know, possibly people that are not familiar with it, maybe they'll, they'll hear about it and it might jar something loose that they've heard about, or you never know if the right person's going to hear it. Yeah, that's, that's it. It's just all a matter of somebody hearing. So if somebody hears anything and they want to leave something on that Facebook group or even to that Portland police, or even there, there's actually another tip line I can give you as well, if you'd like. Um, that's 207-874-8584. It's 207-874-8584. And that's another anonymous tip line um, through Portland Police as well. And uh, if anybody has anything to say, you know, it'd be greatly appreciated. And just to close out, when you're thinking of your dad or, or other people are listening to this and, and hearing about your dad, what do you want the takeaway to be about him and about his life? Um, man, he's, he was so young, you know, so the fact that he just never got to really live his life. I mean, at 26 years old, you're still trying to figure out who you are and where you're going. And somebody took that away from him. And not only that, they took our father away. They took our grand, my kid's grandfather away. They took a loving man away, somebody who, like I said, was a mama's boy. You know, he, he was just maybe rough on the exterior, but he had the biggest heart. And I feel like, that, you know, like you said earlier, that the media, you know, they just focused on um, his drinking or his assault, you know. But there's two sides to every story. You know, drinking and driving is plain black and white, but an assault charger could have been in a, in a fist fight between two guys at a young age. We're talking in their early 20s. Um, I don't, most of the people that I know who've been into a bar in the early twenties are getting into a fight, you know, it's just the way it goes. But, um, you know, I just want uh, people to know that my dad had a big heart and that he was a very loving person and he would do anything for anybody, whether it was shovel the neighbor's driveway or, you know, change a person's tire on the side of the road. You know, he, he would do anything for, for anybody. He was a people person. And, you know, it's, it's awful that your family was robbed of having, you know, more years with him and, and experiencing some of that stuff that you t- talked about. Um, and I hope for your, for your sake and, and your kids and your brother and your entire family that they do find out who did this. I hope so. And especially for my aunt, my aunt worked really hard on my dad's case. She was very close to my dad. Um, as my dad was the baby of the, of the family and my aunt was one of the oldest. Um, she was kind of like a second mom to him. So they spent a lot of time together. Like for example, my aunt, she's clumsy. She's silly. Uh, you know, she took out the trash one night and, in her apartment building and she threw her car keys in the trash with a trash bag and who went into the dumpster to find it? My dad, you know, he dug in the dumpster for two hours looking for her car keys and he found them, you know, he was <laughs> the kind of guy he was, you know? So, I really feel for my aunt. It's really my grandmother. If she was still alive, you know, God bless her. She, she hurt every day and she would look at me sometimes and she'd start crying and I'd say, Grammy, what's wrong? And she'd say, you look like your father so much. And she was just in so much pain from my dad's death. She, she truly never, ever got over it. Uh, And, and we talked a little bit about it. It, it, affected so many generations within your family, you, your grandmother, your, um, your kids, um, as often happens in these kind of cases, it's a ripple effect. Literally it is a ripple effect. It doesn't stop. You know, I mean, 
at this point, you know, if I, ha- if I decide to have more children, those children are without a grandfather, you know, so it's just, it's not going to stop. And I know finding the person who murdered my dad isn't going to be the answer to my heartache, but it'll give me some closure, some relief. And then you can figure out the next chapter of, of how to deal with that. But I guess that's the first step is finding out who did it and maybe finding out why and, and then going from there. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a pretty um, open-minded guy as well. I'm very free-spirited as well. And, you know, I always had a lot of hate for this person. I always thought, you know, they, they deserve the worst things in life to happen to them and only them. But, um, you know, then I think about it, and this person could be uh, a father. You know, this person is somebody's son. This person is a brother. He's an uncle. You know, it affects other people as well, you know, so... Not to say that um, I could forgive him, but I I could uh, relate to his family and him just being a, a person, you know, and, and the person that maybe made a mistake, you know, that's something that um, that he could never get take back, you know, it's a mistake that just affected my family and his family probably forever, you know. So, well. I hope that you do find out who it is and, and hopefully that helps you in some way. And if you ever do find out, I'd love to have you on for a follow-up discussion and, and talk more about what you found that, out. That would be amazing. Absolutely. I would, awesome. uh, lo- I'd love to share my story with people. You know, I have tattoos for my dad and I love people when they ask what's that for, you know, I love explaining it. Um, you know, my dad, uh, my dad's legacy is, something I hold to my heart and I'm just never going to let it go. So, well, again, just hoping for your family that you get the news that you've been waiting for. I appreciate it. And I hope that, um, this podcast helps, you know, anything that we can do to get his story told is, um, a big step for us, whether it was just local media or even like my brother posting flyers around a neighborhood or something as a podcast that can reach everybody across the United States. Uh, I mean, anything we can do to, to get a story out there is what we're going to do. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.